It's the third win against the top ten, and the Orange had them all the way. They didn't look into your heart. They didn't look into your heart. They didn't look into my heart. Three for the win battle. Bang! Boom! It's the Orange doing again. The cardiac juice comes through on the road one more time. This is Orange Nation with Stephen Fonte and Seth Goldberg. Good afternoon, everyone. Glad to have you with us alongside Seth Goldberg. I'm Stephen Fonte. It's a Friday edition of Orange Nation. We're brought to you in part by Duntire, 315-437-7644 if you'd like to get involved. We do have a couple of guests lined up for you today. Seth's co-host on Yankees on Deck, Matt Michael, set to join us at 1230. And then Jason Dumas, he's the sports director at our Next Star television station in Hagerstown, Maryland. He's going to come on at the top of hour number two to talk about Bryce Golden, who reportedly on campus today and will be making his official visit to Syracuse this weekend. Uh, his list down to six was originally committed to Pittsburgh, decommitted after Kevin Stallings was let go and would be a great piece to the puzzle for the Orange, especially with Darius Baisley moving on to the G League. So we'll get Jason Dumas's thoughts on Bryce Golden, his game, why he committed to Pitt, how well he would fit potentially uh, on this Syracuse roster. That's coming up at about 105. I do want to start uh, with baseball, Seth. And our Yankees are 6-7. and seven. They are. At what point, and, and maybe you're there, maybe you're not there yet, are you, are you concerned even a little bit about mm. this start? No. It's 13 games. Okay. There, there are 149 more. Uh, no, I, I don't think you get concerned um, for a little while. And I know the season started a little bit earlier, so maybe you bump up the timeline. But um, I, I think that you don't really worry until you get to May, until you get to maybe mid-May, see how things play themselves out. And uh, you know what? We knew that the starting pitching wasn't going to be as good as it was the first time through the rotation, and, and that certainly showed itself uh, the last time through the rotation. So you got to hope that they can right the ship and find some kind of a happy medium. It looks like the bats are coming alive. Stanton had a, a very good series in Boston. I think he was 6 for 12. Stan, uh, Sanchez had a very good series in Boston. Uh, Aaron Judge is on a 10-game hitting streak where he's hit you know 450. So, yeah, I, I think that the bats are coming alive, and, and the pitching's got a round into form of, of you know somewhere close to what we think it might be able to be. I'm not talking about panic button. I'm not talking about full-fledged worry. Are you being honest with me, though, that you're not even a little bit concerned? The, the confidence really. level you had of this team going to the playoffs three weeks ago, Yeah. same confidence level at this very moment? Yeah. I, I still think they're a playoff team. I think that they're going to right the ship and they're going to make the playoffs. Uh, there's a, Again, there's a lot of baseball left to be played. You know, At, at some point during the year, you're going to struggle. At some point during the year, you're going to do worse than going 500 or a game under 500. You're going to go on an extending losing streak. So, okay, it happened now, right? It happened out of the gate. You know, at some point, you're going to go on a stretch like the Red Sox. Oh, but the Red Sox just happened to do it the first three weeks of the year, you know? So uh, it happens. Like, baseball's kind of one of those games of, of long runs. And, uh, you know, the fact that it happens just out of the gate I don't want to make any you know snap judgments based on that just because it's the first run of the season. All right. You wouldn't bite. You wouldn't take the bait. Uh, I tend to agree with you. I, I'm not panicking either. I, I'm not even close to panicking. I'm not concerned either. It is so early. At what point, though, like if they're one game below 500 right now, if they're one game below 500, I don't know, a full month in, maybe a little bit of doubt starts to creep in. But I think the fact that you're 13 games in, it is still very early. 
you know, you just played the Red Sox. Um, you know, they're, if not the best team in the American League, certainly one of the best teams in the American League. So give it some time. Not, not time to they're, worry they're just yet. They're not the best team in the American League. I'm one sorry. of. Yeah. One of. One of. But Who the, would you put at the top? The, the Astros. Yeah. Uh, the Astros. Uh, they, they, are, they are a machine. They uh they won the World Series last year. They brought back every position player, uh you know of note. They didn't bring back Carlos Beltran. He retired, but they brought back every position player of note. And then they add a full season of Justin Verlander, not one month plus the playoffs. And they get Garrett uh, Garrett Cole. Uh, they are an absolute machine. It feels like there are you know we talk about this in the NBA. It feels like there are a handful of teams in the American League that you feel like all right that team has a legitimate shot. At making it to the World Series. Astros certainly at the top of the list, but I think Yankees and Red Sox uh, have to be on that list as well. Um, you know, the Indians, we'll, we'll see how things pan yeah. out for them. I throw, Look, I, I think, and, and I thought this going into the year, I think that there are, 16, that there are six playoff spots, uh, or there are five playoff spots, right? And, and there are five teams that I think are going to make the playoffs. I think Yankees, Red Sox, Astros, Indians, Angels. I, I think it's those five teams. And... Until I'm proven otherwise, until we get to Memorial Day and and we see these teams struggling, or until we get to, you know, if even further than that maybe, and see these teams really struggling, I'm going to believe that those are the five teams in the American League that make the playoffs. And quite honestly, like there's probably not a lot of other teams that are going to be over 500 in the American League. That's what happened last year. There were five playoff teams, and no one else was over 500. And, and I wouldn't be shocked if that happens again. So I asked you, at what point does concern or doubt creep in? You're telling me not till June. Memorial Day is always my marker. I don't know if that, like, I don't, I don't know if that changes, but Memorial Day tends to be my marker. And Matt and I talked about this a lot last year with the start that the Yankees got off to, and they had a great April, and they went 20, 21 and nine. And we were like, all right, like, let's give it to Memorial Day. That that seems to be like the 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 quarter marker of the season. Okay, let's see if this is for real then. And then, you know, if if it is, cool. Then then we've got like a fun story on our hands with the Yankees going to the playoffs. And if not, okay, then then they are what we thought. So I, I tend to think that's like the first mile marker is is that Memorial Day weekend. All right. I assume you spent your night watching Yankees Red Sox. Yeah, and I watched the hockey playoffs. I did. Watch the Lightning, Crunch's uh, Parent Club a, in action. A little bit. They were on at the same time as the Yankees and Red Sox, so it was a bit hard. All right, so I spent uh, a good portion of my evening out at NBT Bank Stadium, Syracuse Chiefs home opener. We started the week talking a lot about the pace of play, and we had John Schiambi on from ESPN. He, he shared with us his thoughts. It was my first chance last night to see all of this like on display in person. You know, We saw the pitch clock, obviously, last year. You know, pitch clock has changed to some degree. Now you get 15 seconds if no one's on base, 20 seconds if there's a runner on base. The mound visits are limited this year, as you know, Seth. And then there's this extra inning experiment. If the game goes into extra innings, you start with a runner on second base, and then you, you play from there. We saw all three of those things on display last night, and I saw all three of those things firsthand. I'll tell you this. First three innings of the game last night, between the Chiefs and the Norfolk Tides. First three innings, 10 runs combined, hmm. 10 hits combined. Both wow. pitchers were in a lot of trouble much of the time. And you would normally see, at the very least, you would see a catcher go out to the mound, try to calm down the pitcher. At one point, the Norfolk Tide pitcher, there was a runner on first. He walked back-to-back -back guys to load the bases. You know how many mound visits there were, official mound visits, in those first three innings? 
A handful? Two, three? One. And so we talk about how are these rules going to change? Did it speed up the game? I mean, I guess. I mean, I, you know, I guess those mound visits would have slowed the game down. But in terms of strategy, it absolutely affected the strategy early on in these games. And I'm not sure we would have seen 10 combined runs if the catcher went out, calmed down the pitcher, if the manager went out, pitching coach went out, talked to him a little right. bit. We definitely saw a strategy change last night by both managers. They let their pitchers figure it out. And I'm still trying to figure out like how I feel about that. Like If I like that or if I don't like that. In terms of the pace of play, again, it didn't slow the game down. But we saw a lot of runs. We saw a very high-scoring game last night. And I think in part... Because, you know, the pitchers were kind of left out there. The pitch clock's going. There's no way to kind of yeah. break the rhythm of the opposing offense. Yeah, you know, you bring up an interesting, I, I think, unintended consequence of this. And I like the mound visit rule at the major league level. I really do. Because there's no reason for the catcher to go out every, you know, every time the signs are messed up. There, there's no reason for that. Uh, at the minor league level, though, doesn't it seem counterintuitive? Doesn't it seem like... The, and, and this is especially so in the minor in minor league baseball. Minor league baseball is is there for the sole purpose. They could care less about winning. There, it, it is there for the sole purpose of getting players better and getting them to the majors, right? Or getting them to that next level of baseball, whether it's you know double A AA to triple A or, or so forth. So doesn't it seem counterintuitive to leave your pitcher out there on an island and say, hey? Good luck. F- figure this out on your own. Like, it's about development, and, right? And that and might hurt their development. Right, and that's my point. It doesn't make sense to me to, on one hand, say, "Hey, major league, minor league baseball is all about development, getting players better, and getting them to, you know, the major leagues or the next level of baseball," and also say, "You know, we're going to limit mound visits and we're going to limit teaching opportunities, and we're we're not going to let coaches or managers or catchers go out and and calm down their pitchers so that they can better pitch and and be better prepared." So I think it's a bit counterintuitive in the minor league levels. I love the pitch clock. I want them to institute the pitch clock in the major leagues. But the the mound visit seems like something that they they put in in the major leagues, and they were like, you know what, we should just do it throughout all of baseball. And and they didn't kind of take into account, like, oh, maybe you should allow for more mound visits at lower levels of baseball. Maybe you should, you know, allow for eight or ten mound visits rather than six. And and as that gets down to double A and trip and single A, maybe even more. When I asked uh, Chiefs manager Randy Knorr about this uh, last week, he said one of the things he brought up, I thought it was an interesting point, he said throughout all levels of baseball up to this point, catchers are taught when your pitcher's in trouble, you call Tom and you go out and you talk to him and you calm him down, you give him a pat on the butt, you say, right. you know, just you know, me and you playing catch, what, you know, words of encouragement. You're taught that from Little League, through high yes. school, through college, through you know the minors, and now all of a sudden... These catchers are being told, can't do it anymore. No, no more. Not only like, do we like, you know, is it a bad idea to do? Like, it, it might hurt us. Like later in the game, like that, it would limit the amount of times that a pitching coach or manager can go out to the mound. And it's it's going to be a transition. There's no doubt about it. We did see last night a few instances where the catcher didn't go out to the mound, but he did you know, signal to some of the players and move some players around. And I got to think that was, again, in an attempt in part to, to try and slow things down and slow down the pitcher and slow down, you know, the you know the, the opponent's, you know, offensive rhythm a little bit. So we might see more of that. That obviously won't affect really the pace of the game. But we saw the strategy change last night in regards to the pitch clock. 
I mentioned both pitchers were in a lot of trouble in the first few innings. So when the guy's on base, it's it's 20 seconds. I didn't realize until I saw it in person that when the pitcher comes set, the pitch clock resets, stops. So it's not that you have to throw the ball in 20 you seconds. Set. You have yeah. to come set. And be you know, you can't fool around behind the mound and you know look in for the sign. And you need to be ready to go at 20 seconds. You don't necessarily need to throw the ball at 20 right. seconds. So what we saw multiple times was the pitcher would come set with about two seconds left on the pitch clock. Then he would step off the rubber. Resets. Goes again. Or he would come set for so long and check the runner that the batter would step out. So that might be something they need to tweak because well, you can still take as long as you want, just as long as you come right. set. Well, yeah. They, what needs to happen is they need to enforce it, right? Like you, you need to then enforce that rule and you need to do something about it. You can't just let it go. I, I think that, yeah, that's that's part of the rule. Like it makes sense to make guys go faster, right? It makes sense to cut down on the, oh, I'm going to take a walk behind the mound. I'm going to circle the mound four times and then I'm going to look in and get my sign. I'm going to shake the catcher off four times before going back to the first pitch that he threw down. <laughs> and then I'm going to get set and I'm going to pitch. Like That makes a lot of sense to cut down on all of that stuff, but you also have to enforce it, right? You also have to like find a way to actually enforce it. My initial worry with the pitch clock was, well, if there's a runner on first and the clock is counting down and it's at three, two, one, he just goes, right? And, and so that was my initial worry of, Runners are going to get smart to this and time it up and just go. Yeah. And obviously that that there's a reason why they have to stop the clock at some point because you don't want that to happen. Right. Um but you know at the same time you've got to be able to enforce it some way so that what you're saying doesn't happen where oh you come set to stop the clock you step off. You come set and just wait and then hope that the batter steps out. There's got to be some some kind of middle ground there. I also noticed a couple of instances and I had my eye on the clock and I was curious to see how all this was going to play out and how it was enforced. There were a couple instances where the clock just flat out ran out before the pitcher came set and the umpire didn't do anything. Now well, that's I know, on the umpire. Right. And I know early in the season they said they're going to be a little more lenient while everybody gets used to the rules and the transition and all that. So maybe that's all it is and maybe, you know, a month from now it'll be a ball immediately if the clock runs out. But we saw a couple instances last night. Clock ran out, nothing happened. Um in terms of the last rule, the extra inning rule it worked the way they wanted it to. The game went into extra innings. It went one extra I inning. I hate it so much. Norfolk didn't score, in the, and I'm not saying I like it or don't like it, but the, the the rule worked. If it's all about shortening the game and getting a quick conclusion if the game goes into extra innings, it worked to perfection last night. Yes. Norfolk goes first, obviously. you know They're the away team. They get a runner on second. They move the runner over to third with one out. There was a, a shallow pop fly, not deep enough to score on a sack fly. Out number two, they don't end up scoring. Chiefs get the runner on second. They move him over to third, and they, they, they knock him in. Chiefs win. Took one extra inning. Game's over. That's exactly what baseball wants. That is exactly what baseball wants, but I hate this rule so much. I never want to see this anywhere close to a major league stadium. It is... It, it it just it bothers me like it it feels like it's not actually baseball. It's like the college football overtime rule, right? And and it, I hate that too. Like I I can't stand that college football overtime rule either. And you know I I know they were talking about this on on the Yankee broadcast at one point, but the very first time it was used, right? The first minor league game this year that went into extra innings, team scored in the top of the tenth, team tied it up in the bottom of the tenth, and then same thing happened in the twelfth, and and. And so you end up with these weird distorted scores. And that I don't, you know, whatever, that that happens. But I, I don't like this idea that we're just going to say, okay, you know what, baseball is a hard game, but we're just going to give you, we're going to put somebody halfway there. Uh, you know, I'd much rather, and, and 
John Shambi talked about this when he was on with us the other day. I'd much rather them, and, and I don't know that I'm all the way there on this rule, I'd rather them say, hey, play 12 innings and it's a tie after 12 innings. If, if we don't have a winner by the 12th inning, that's it. And you know what that might do? That might let people kind of take, take a deep breath because what do you see when teams go to extra innings right now, especially in the major leagues? You see everybody swinging, swinging for the fences even more so than normal. Right, They swing for the fences, and they try and end the game on one swing because they're just kind of tired. They just want to be done with it. They want to go home. And I think that saying, hey, guys, you're not going past 12 innings, maybe it'll lead to some more of, like, you know, maybe even shortening up a little bit more than you would over the course of a nine-inning game. Say, hey, let's just string together three singles. We'll get the guy in. We'll, We'll be done. I really like that idea as well. Not only will the teams maybe be a little bit more aggressive with base running and whatnot, how about for the fans? When the game goes into extra innings, it's late. Most of the time, you know, it's uh, it's late at night. You know, obviously, if it's an afternoon game, it's not late. But say it's a 7 o'clock start. The game goes into extra innings. It's 11 right. o'clock. you got to get home. You're tired. You know that there's a definitive end of the game. You spent all that money, parking, you know, the concessions, right. all that. You may... Be more apt to stay there through 12 innings because, you know, okay, there's a definitive end of this game coming. So it might be better for the fans. might be better for the teams. They might play more aggressively. It'll be better for the bullpens. You're not going to kill your bullpen with a 16-inning game. And let's be honest, over the course of 162 games, if you have a couple of ties in there, is it really going to come down on the final day of the regular season to, you know, well, that tie has become a problem? Well, it might, but... The, but, my, it, but again, my, I mean, very but, rarely do right. we even see in divisional races well, where it comes down to the final day or two. Right. So a tie is going to come back to haunt you? And, and Steve, the thing that I also come back to, how many games are there that go more than 12 innings? You know, it, it's, it's not like you're saying, hey, end the game after nine, right? Like, there's enough extra innings baseball, you know, over the course of the year that you can't say, hey, after nine innings, we're done. But... To, to say, hey, after 12 innings or after 13 innings or, or find, you know, find something there, um, you know, and, and say, hey, that's where the definitive end is. I, I don't think that's egregious. I, I think that the tendency has been to go to the 12th because that would be nine extra outs, right? And nine's kind of the magic number in baseball for whatever reason, lineup innings, you know, you name it. Sure. Uh, so, okay, that would be nine extra outs, 10, 11, and 12. Okay, so you, you get nine extra outs. You get one more time through the batting order. And if you if neither of you guys can score, let's just call it. Let's go home. And, and you know, I'm, I am I get it. And uh, <laughs> Boog Shambi laid out the case great. He goes, nobody in their right mind would say, hey, we're going to play 162 games over 182 days, and we're going to play until there's a winner, and then we're going to come back and play at 1 o'clock the next afternoon. Like I mean, nobody, nobody would invent that sport. Even soccer has ties, like if it's not a playoff game, right? I mean, you could have a 1-1 tie or nil-nil. I mean, you know, you go to penalty kicks to, to decide certain things in the World Cup and beyond, right. but, you know, that's you know playoff no, games and whatnot. No, there are ties in the World Cup. Right, but I'm saying in once, once you get to the knockout <laughs> stage, right. I mean, you have ties in soccer, and, you know, I get the whole, you know, I'm old-fashioned, I, you know, I, I'm old school, I, I like the fact that it's a timeless game. But again, some of these games drag out. Let's be honest, Yankees-Red Sox, it was very entertaining two nights ago. The game went over four hours. Yes. Last night went about four hours. There was a short rain delay, obviously, but, you know, it, that went three and a half of, of actual baseball. Yep. Um, 
I think something and, needs to be done. And, and it went three and a half of actual baseball when one team didn't have a hit for six right. innings. Right. Like, you can't even say, oh, there was a lot going on. Like, nothing happened. Right. 6-3, the final score was a little deceiving. I mean, it, it didn't feel like a 6-3 game. No. It felt like the Red Sox were going to win this game, and then obviously the Yankees had that flurry at the end, but wasn't enough. We do need to take our first time out, 315-437-7644. Matt Michaels set to join us in about 10, 15 minutes from now. We're back after this on ESPN Radio. Live from Armory Square, this is Orange Nation with Stephen Fonte and Seth Goldberg. Stephen, Seth, back with you on a Friday edition of Orange Nation. Uh, before we bring on Max Bergani, we're going to talk some SU football with Max. Just to finish up our conversation with Jason Dumas, you know, he said if he was if he was handicapping this, I think that you. You put that well, Seth, in terms of your question, because we don't know what the kid's thinking, and he's still got to go on these visits. But if you were if you were handicapping the the, the program's chances, you know, you said, what, "What do you think?" and and he gave Syracuse the edge. And again, just the little we know about his situation, and the little we know about, you know, certainly the teams he's deciding between. I think Syracuse has an edge. They obviously have a need. He's going to get playing time. Jason said he's going to be here for a while. O'Shea Brissett's not going to be here a while. You wouldn't think. Probably past next year. You have a guy who can come in, play three, four years for you, stick around, develop, 6'9", add some depth. He was an ACC caliber player that was going to go to Pittsburgh for you know personal reasons. You know His family was close with Kevin Stallings. He liked the academic programs there. He's an ACC caliber player that all of a sudden now needs a home. And you look at the teams he's deciding between, and there's one ACC team on the list. And if he really does want to play in driving, you know, within driving distance, it's probably not going to Illinois or Butler. No, you know, Georgetown's just down the road, but you know, Syracuse is certainly a, a better program than than really any of those on the list. So, again, all things being equal, if this is a basketball decision, and if this is a, I want my family to see me play decision, I think Syracuse is sitting pretty. Yeah, I mean, I think so. And and you know, uh, Jason mentioned that he wants. Not only like the school within driving distance, it seems like the fact that there are a lot of opponents in driving distance. You know, you can go to Georgetown and you could be right there, but you know, it's it's not like you're playing a lot of teams that are, that are right there. So, uh, you know, I think it depends on which one of those two factors is more important. Does he want to get away but still be able to go back home and play in front of his family a bunch, which you know you would do with Virginia Tech, Virginia, uh, you know, even you know, probably the the North Carolina schools aren't too far. From there, or you know, do you want to be right in the area? I don't know. Uh, there's a lot to be decided on, and uh, you know, I th- I think it's interesting watching. I, I don't think, and and I think this is important. I don't think that the coaches would be wasting their time, and I don't think that he would be wasting his time if they didn't both have a lot of interest in having no, him here. And I think Syracuse is very interested in him in terms of the mutual interest part of it. Not that he would be wasting time, but you get five visits, so. Are you equally interested in all five schools? Probably not. You know, right. but you take the five visits and it, I have to think though there is high interest on both sides. Syracuse has a need. He wants to play close to home. He wanted to play in the ACC. There are a lot of reasons yeah. why I think Syracuse is in good shape for this. Again, just my my gut says if I'm a betting man, if I was handicapping this, I would put Syracuse in the lead right now. So we'll see how it all plays out. And I know a lot of SU fans hoping that, that Bryce Golden ends up uh, wearing an orange jersey next year. I said we're going to bring in Max. Let's do that right now as we switch gears. We're going to talk a little SU football. The spring game tonight. Uh, Everyone's Max. favorite event. Yeah. I don't know about that. Are you going? But, <laughs> are, are you uh, well, I'm anchoring, somebody... I'm anchoring tonight, oh, okay. so I'll be at the station. But I will, uh, I, I'm planning on going over after the early show. Gotcha. You going? Yeah, I'll see you there. All right, Max, you going? No. no. Got to work. 
Okay, fair enough. I can respect that. What do you got for us? Uh, just, I got some questions about this team for you guys. Uh, start off with Tommy DeVito. How much do you want to see him be utilized today at the spring game? It's probably the only thing I want to see. Uh, <laughs> it, I, I want to see fair. him throwing a football. I, I have not done that yet. I have not seen that yet. Uh, redshirted, obviously, all of last year. Uh, you know, I, w- when I went to practice his last summer, I, I wasn't really seeing him throw. Um, I, I haven't been able to make it out as much uh, this year as I, I would have wanted to, uh, to to spring practice. But I, I think that that's what I'm going to be watching the most. And I think, quite honestly, I think that's what everybody who is there is going to be watching the most. How Just how good is Tommy DeVito? Uh, what kind of raw skills and, and really, let's face it, refined skills at this point does he have? And, and you know, how, how does he utilize that and... What kind of quarterback is he? I think that's what everybody's going to be looking for tonight. I was just going to say, if you ask that question to everyone that shows up tonight as they walk in, I bet 95% of them, maybe more, that Tommy DeVito is at the top of the list. He is, by all accounts, the quarterback of the future for this franchise. And whether that future means next season or the year you know, after that, Eric Dungy's the incumbent, we know that. But if Dungy gets hurt or if things go south... You know, Tommy DeVito may be the guy sooner rather than later, but at the very least, you're looking a year down the road. He, he's the quarterback of the future here. He, he is the quarterback that you presumably will see under center or behind center for three years. So, yeah, I think he is. he's absolutely at the top of my list. He's at the top of your list, Seth, and, and I would agree with you. I think you know pretty much every SU fan that shows up tonight, they're going to be curious to see what Tommy DeVito looks like throwing the football. Is it fair to say he's the most highly touted quarterback recruit since McNabb came here? Could you make that statement? I mean, think about uh, yeah. it. Yeah, I th- I think yeah, I think I would get behind that. Yeah. Um, and only time will tell if he turns out to be the best since McNabb. But in terms of highly touted, yeah, I would I would buy that. He is he's been talked up quite a bit. What other players are you keen on watching tonight? I think that and that, look, I don't know how much contact there's going to be, so I, I would say the offensive line just because. That unit last year was so bad, and that unit, you know, didn't allow the offense to get going. So you have to look at the offensive line, see really who's playing where. I think more so than what they do, um, and then defensively the linebackers because they are all new, and we don't know too much about them. Uh, they they are new to that position in this defense, and I, and I think they're going to be really important. Zaire Franklin, Paris Bennett, Jonathan Thomas, four seniors, four guys who started multiple years, uh, three guys, sorry, who are seniors and started multiple years. Uh, all gone and and out of the program, and they've got to replace all three of them. So that's going to be uh, a difficult task. The tough thing with the spring game is you generally don't learn a lot. You generally don't quote-unquote see a lot. With Tommy DeVito, like you could see him throw the football. Like You don't have to have contact, or it doesn't have to be full speed to be like, wow, there's Tommy DeVito throwing the football. I like his arm, and and that could be fun for the SU fans. So in terms of who else am I looking forward to seeing, I'm not sure about tonight, but just who am I curious about? Certainly the linebackers fall under that category. why I said it the way I did. See who's playing where, yeah, right? right? Like, okay, who are the five offensive linemen and in what position? You know, oh, who are the three linebackers on the one unit? Oh, who's who's the wide receiver that's filling those spots all over the field that they have to fill? Like, I, I don't know that I'm looking at what they are doing, but really who they are. I think I'm most curious about the wide receiver position because, you know, and Stephen Bailey brought up this point when we recently had him on. It's a great point. You know, you, 
you've had, you know, Amba Etatau and Steve Ishmael and Irv Phillips, and, and you've had these guys that, that rack up catches and yards and set records, and they're not with the program anymore. And now you've got Antoine Cordy that's, you know, kind of dabbling into the offense. How much are they actually going to use him on offense? You've got Jamal Custis now working in the slot. You know, is is that where his home is going to be moving forward? Nikeen Johnson, you know that the coaches really like him, and we've heard so much about him. Who is that next guy or that next guy or two going to be in that unit? Because you know they're going to throw the ball a ton. You know they're going to rack up yards and catches and, and you know, push on setting records. I think who, it's who Jamal, are the guys going to be? I, I think it's Jamal Custis, Steve. Well... You know my my former partner on this show, uh, Sal Manin, absolutely loved Jamal Custis from the moment he walked in the door. Hasn't quite lived up to you know to the hype that Sal had for him, but you know is this the year for Jamal Custis? So so many questions. If there's a position group in particular, and and everything you mentioned, it's not wrong, Seth. Obviously, I mean there's there are questions on the offensive line and linebacker, and you're curious to see that group. For me, anyway, I'm most curious to see that that next group of wide receivers. Uh, we got a two parter coming up here. What, let's start with the biggest strength of this team. What do you guys think that that this could be coming into this year. Biggest strength is Eric Dungey. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know. I mean, like, I would no, I would say Eric Dungey, court, except, he, well, except he's played sixteen okay. games over the last so two years. The quarterback position that that is is that not the know. number I've one strength? I've never seen Tommy DeVito throw a football. But like, you know who the starter is? Is is it's Eric not going to be DeVito. Not the strength of this team. Yes, except that he hasn't finished the season. But going into the seat, he said, what's the strength of this team? But how can you you say that's the strength when the guy has played three seasons and hasn't finished any of them? I can say it's the strength because he's he's the most dynamic player on the field. He is, and I I agree with you, but... At the same time, I don't think that can be considered a strength of the team when, like, quite literally, there's a there's a better than fifty percent chance that he's not going to play all twelve games this year because well, he's done it because three years he's he's played quarterback the majority of the season, but all three years he has not played every single game. Because well, the he's injury that kept him out last year. year was not a head injury, so right, you know but, that's good but, news. No, but it is good news. It, see, it's good news in one regard, but is it just also okay? So it's not the head injury; he got something else. Like he's just gonna get dinged and because he's doing so much because he's running the ball every play that he's not throwing the ball then he's just going to keep getting dinged and he's going to keep getting you're hurt overthinking and this Seth. and he's not going to finish the year you're again. overthinking this max said what's the strength of this team it, the answer is eric dungey like are you going to give a different answer no i don't have another answer okay fair enough so that's the answer <laughs> so you're like you're overthinking this so like yes my answer would be eric dungey except for the fact that he's played 8 games he basically so he just gave the right answer to the test and then he just explained to the teacher like why did, he thinks that's not the right I did, answer I so what you say plus 2 is 4 while explaining that but it's it really shouldn't five. be because right so would you say the biggest weakness is Eric Dungy's health? Because that was the second part of the no, question. No, I don't think that's the biggest weakness of this what team. What is Grant, the biggest weakness granted, of this team? Granted, if Eric Dungy doesn't finish the season healthy, then they're they're not probably going to, uh, you know, it's it's hard to say that they're going to accomplish what they want to, given what has happened the they last three years. They have a pretty good backup they plan do. this year, though. They have a much better backup plan than they did the pa- the previous couple of years. Uh, what, what's the biggest weakness? Uh, is it the same weaknesses that we saw last year of you can't establish a run game and, and your defense can't stop a, a decent quarterback? I, I mean, don't know, is, if, is it the same I don't know weakness? if you'll give me full credit for this response, Max. Um, I think the biggest weakness, and, and if you listen to, to Dino Baber's talk, I think he thinks this might be the biggest weakness as well. It's just overall depth. It's overall depth, and that speaks to what you're talking about, Seth, with you know the offensive line and how will the linebacking core be, and you know if a guy gets dinged up, what what happens behind him? And and for so long we've seen this team that when the starters, if a starter goes down, there's a big drop off. I don't think we see that big drop off anymore. But across the board, 
do they have the depth to compete throughout the entire season as injuries start to add up and guys get banged up? Do they have the depth necessary to not skip a beat? And so I think that, you know, I don't know if I want to call it a weakness or, you know, the question mark or, you know, maybe my biggest question mark going into the season. Do they have enough depth? I think uh, that's that's the weakness. of, and, and that speaks to what Seth is talking about, about establishing the run game and, you know, how will the linebackers do with, you know, with Zaire Franklin and Paris Bennett gone and, and so on and so forth. What's one thing we know? Do I get full credit for that? You, you full, buy that? Yeah, okay. I buy that. What's one thing we absolutely know about this team coming into this season? Schedule's really hard. That Eric Dungey went healthy as the best player on the field for the for yeah. this team. And they're gonna throw it a lot and they're gonna they're gonna score points. They're gonna score points. Regardless of the pieces to the puzzle, they're gonna figure it out. I think we've learned that with Dino Babers in the offense. It works. And Eric Dungey works when he's in the game. And the receivers, whoever they are, they're gonna catch passes and they're gonna score touchdowns and they're gonna put up points. Um and I, I think we also know the schedule is very demanding. And it's going to be tough to take that next step and you know get to six and six and get to a bowl game. It's you know you don't have LSU on the schedule, but it's still a tough schedule. Is there? Would you you, say no, you used to watch out LSU for Notre Dame. Right. More, more pressure on the defense or the offense this year because it seemed like at times last year when defense was on the field so much it, they were gassed and it was because the offense just couldn't get anything going. So you think that coming into this year the whole. You know, running game needs to like obviously be better than it was last year. You can't get two yards, two yards, and then be stuck with third and long every time. Do you think that that is an emphasis that Dino Babers is putting on this season? Is getting a bit bigger chunk plays in the early downs just to make third down more manageable, so you can keep your defense off the field a little longer? And you know how he runs that high-powered, like fast-paced offense. It just seems like last time or last year. The defense got stranded on the field a little bit, and well, they, they were did. just gassed. They did, uh, but you know, th- that's part of the problem of running this offense, and that's one of those unintended consequences of running this fast-paced offense. That you're either going to score quick or, or go three and out quick, and and I think that the defense needs to adjust in a way. But I also think that the defense has to be better when they are getting the the rest and the time off the field, because there were plenty of times last year when the offense was doing all right, doing its job, and the defense gave it right back. You said, is there more pressure on the offense or the defense? I think if you take both units side by side, I think you'll you'll live with the amount of points that the offense is putting up. I think you, you need to get better on the defensive side of the football. Now, with that being said, both units have room to improve, obviously. And, you know, they have to run the ball better and they have to, you know, be able to to keep the ball and and not just, you know, punt it away after a minute and a half and put the defense right back on the field. So that's on the offense. But I think the defense overall has to improve. So of the two units, I think you can live with the offense being relatively the same in terms of production. I think the offense, uh, the defense rather, has to get better. We do need to take a timeout. Max, don't go anywhere. We'll get to today's business on the other side. Keep it here.